Welcome to another Gary Anderson F1 Show podcast. I'm Ed Straw and with me, as always, is the main man, Gary Anderson. We're going to be working through more listener questions in another Ask Gary Anything episode, but with a focus on the big themes from the Belgian Grand Prix weekend we've just had and the Monza weekend that is to come. Thanks very much for keeping us supplied with so many questions and apologies that we can never get through them all. Uh, if you follow Gary on Twitter on at GaryAndersonF1, you can always fling some questions at him anytime to go into the mix for future podcasts. We've also enjoyed reading your reviews on Apple Podcasts and other platforms, so if you enjoy what you hear, we'd very much appreciate some more reviews, and feel free if you do, write a quick review to let us know what you'd like to hear Gary talk about. Uh, but we're going to move on with the, the questions, but I suppose first up, Gary, it was a, a relatively straightforward Belgian Grand Prix, so uh, yeah, what, another one of those ones where we're having to dig a little bit more deeper to uh, to find the uh, the interesting topics, given the, the fairly predictable results. Yeah, it was really at the end of the day. Um, I mean, the rain that was sort of promised for Sunday never never showed up. Um, so at the end of the day, you know, there was decisions made by different cars of different wing levels because of potentially different conditions. But I think you know that it was uh, we could see from Saturday that that was going to be the end result. To be honest, there wasn't much else could be done about it. So um, one of those races where there was lo- lots of excitement going on, but unfortunately it wasn't right at the front. It was uh, it was further back, and you know as long as we get something that's very good. But I keep saying the one thing that shows me what what the TV companies think the people want to see is competition, and that's why the director keeps cutting from the, the leader to to some something happened further down. I mean, for a long, long time there, you wouldn't have known Lewis Hamilton or Valtteri Bottas was at the end of the race. There was uh, nothing going on for them, so. Uh, we need to find some way of closing that all up so there's competition right at the front. Yeah, it's the, uh, the same old story. But as always, there were there were plenty of uh, storylines underlying, underpinning everything, shall we say. So lots of questions. So first up, obviously the Renault performance with Daniel Ricciardo fourth and Esteban Ocon fifth has caught the attention. Uh, various questions about Renault. We'll start off with Stuart Henry, who asks, where's Renault's sudden pace come from and do you see it continuing once we get back to higher downforce circuits? And there's also a question from Barry Ralph, who says, did they just gamble on a dry race and run with less rear wing? And can they get the same results at, at Monza? So what do you make of Renault overall? Well, I thought they did a very good job. And, they, you know, taking the, the second question first as such, it, it will be more difficult at Monza whenever everybody goes to a, a wing level for, um, for Monza because, obviously, that top speed becomes more of a priority there with the, the length of the straights. Um, you've got to look at the fact that they've, they've learned something because, you know, the way they ran their car in Spa, yes, if it had rained, they would probably have been in a bit of trouble or a bit more trouble. But as as uh, Daniel Daniel Ricciardo says, you know they found the sweet spot. In other words, that you know the, the driver feels the car is is good to drive. He's um, he's happy with the car. That means the car at, at that downforce level is well balanced. It's consistent. It feels good to the driver. It responds to what the driver wants from it. And that's the big thing about having a car that's that's uh, you know in its sweet spot. I suppose the problem for them is that at at Spa. They were 0.8% slower than Mercedes, which is fantastic. That's the closest they've you know, more or less ever been, and as close as anybody's been this year um, to to Mercedes outside of the, you know, the potential top three, or even for quite a few years. But the, the thing is that the, the Mercedes is in its sweet spot, carrying more downforce and 0.8% faster. That's the thing about it. So they've got to find a solution from how the car was in in Spa 
and, and apply that to higher downforce levels. And it's probably some aerodynamic, you know, stalling front wing, some of that sort of area. Whenever they put more downforce in the car, it works the surfaces harder. So there's something not consistent about it. And at that downforce level in Spa, it, it was, you know, it was acceptable. And I think Monza, I think Mugello, you know, that those circuits can also play to, to their hand a little bit because um, they've learned a bit about the car. Now they've got to discover what, why it is and fix it for the races coming up later on that are going to be carrying more downforce. Yeah, I mean, there's loads of questions on, on Renault. Alex Davey, an F1 Aero fanatic, among them asking about this this thing of the, the, the talking about working better on the lower downforce setup. You said maybe there's something stalling, etc. So, so what, do you, what do you do if you have a situation where the car's working better in terms of the feel and balance at low downforce compared to what you might call regular downforce? Because ultimately, Daniel Ricciardo said, well, maybe we should run this concept a few more places. But if they run that sort of configuration at Spain, they're not going to be competitive, are they? Well, no. I mean, just looking at my numbers for the for the year so far, I mean, if you take Hungary, which is the high downforce uh, circuit that, you know, the, the highest downforce circuit they've been to, they were 3% off, off Mercedes. Um, and if you take, as I say, Monza, um, uh, Spa, sorry, they were 0.8% off Mercedes. So there's a massive sh- shift there from a high downforce circuit to a low downforce circuit. And, and that's not just, that's not just, because the car's slower in high downforce level or because they haven't got the downforce in high, high downforce level. It's just that it changes the characteristics of the car somewhat. You know, if you've got a front wing problem, for example, whenever you put the, whenever you put the rear wing on the car, you have to put front wing on the car to balance it. And that's where the problem sort of starts cropping up. The, the more force you put into the car, um, the, the harder it is basically to get the balance in the car and keep it consistently. When, it's, when the car's light in downforce, um, the car moves more, slides a little bit more, but at the end of the day, that's up to the driver. He just needs to be able to feel the car and take it to its maximum, whereas high downforce levels, it becomes a bit more tricky. And as I say, you can lose the balance very quickly. You can also have aerodynamic surfaces that are that are stalling that you don't really realize, to be honest, because the wind tunnel to the to the track is never the same. So as I say, from, from what they did in Spa, I think they'll, they'll have to go away and look at how the car performed on the track relative to their aero map that they predict from the wind tunnel and find out where things are different. But that one thing I do like to see is that a team has gone to a track that, um, and they didn't just put on what the simulation says should be on the car because the simulation is only a set of numbers that comes out of the wind tunnel, comes from tire data, comes from you know all sorts of inputs. But it, it, it's not real data. It's just uh, theoretical data put into a simulation tool that says this is the wing level, this is the lap time and away you go. And and most teams go there and put that onto the car. Renault have been doing the same, but at Spa and even at second Silverstone race, I think they had a little bit of an experiment at the track to see whether it headed in the right direction if they did it differently. And and they found out that it does. So it might wake up a few other teams to try a few things as well to see if they can get something out of it. I.e. Ferrari need a, a good wake up at the minute, but I think it's well beyond them to to achieve it with what they have. But at the end of the day, I think Renault have... It's opened their eyes at Renault. As I say, now they've got to discover why it happened and then try to apply that to the complete car package, high or low downforce um, setups. The final Renault-specific question is from Patrick DeLee, who says, has Alonso finally made the correct decision? So this is in reference to him moving there next year. So this is, I guess, the broader view of Renault. How, How big a positive is this form at Spa? And how do you see the wider progression of this team? Well, 
I don't think we can ever doubt that Daniel Ricardo or Esteban Ocon's talent or ability, especially Daniel Ricardo, when he's proven himself that in times of, of need he can dig deep and, and find solutions. And when he has the car that's underneath him and consistent, he can use his talents, which is one of the very late breakers. He can get the car into the corner without locking up brakes, which is something that Renault weren't able to do before. Um, you know, that was one of the things that hurt Daniel most was probably the, the inconsistency in the braking areas on the, on the, on the Renault. So now seeing all that sort of stuff, <clears throat> Alonso must be rubbing his hands together because he hasn't made this decision. This, this has happened. He's made his decision before any of this unfolded, to be honest. So perhaps that's the best thing he can do is just stay away from making decisions. Um, let the team work on in the direction to get the car as good as possible for next year, learning from this year. And, and you know, Alonso might, might just be in there and, and being able to give it a bit of a charge up front. But I don't expect him to be, you know, an arm and a leg better than Daniel Ricciardo by any means. Daniel's a good little driver and, you know, it'll be tough to actually um, perform better than Daniel Ricciardo. Yeah, it's a very narrow target you're uh, aiming for. Better than Ricciardo, isn't it? Uh, now, this is a question that does bring Renault into it, but uh, Brendan on Twitter just asks, who do you think is currently the third best constructor? And he cites Renault, Racing Point, Ferrari and McLaren as the, as the four uh, constructors in the mix and there's a supplementary question which is which of the three at the back Alfa Romeo Haas and Williams do you think is uh, is strongest those are the two sort of outside the very front battle those are the two groups aren't they yeah um, I mean I think there's, there's a, an old saying out there um, one swallow doesn't make a summer or something like that and I don't think we can take Renault's performance at Spa as, as going to be the regular thing so I think we have to look at it we've had what seven races this year so far um I think we have to look at it as a set of numbers on averages, to be honest, and see who's closest in, in those areas. Now, you know, Mercedes obviously lead the pack. Um, they've got a, a fantastic average there. You know, they're, they've been quickest everywhere. I've, I've taken, uh, for Austria too, I've taken the FP2 practice time because the, the qualifying was very wet and it was changing conditions. So it was very difficult to relate, um, you know, performance of the people went out in, in uh, Q1 to the performance of people in Q3. So this is just from the quickest times of the weekend. So you've got Mercedes and Red Bull. And Red Bull's actually almost 1% slower than uh, than Mercedes. So it's um, uh, you know that's a long way away for just the first the first two. And then next along, we've got uh, Racing Point at 1.2%. We've got McLaren at 1.5%. We've got Ferrari at 1.6%. And Renault at 1.8%. So, you know, the numbers are real. Uh, it's not just bad luck, it's over seven races. So I think you have to look at it and say, at this point in time, Racing Point are doing the best job and they're they're point three of a percent ahead of McLaren. Um, so I think it's one of those two, I'd say, was the, the one that could be joining the, the club, as we call it, the top three. Down the back, again, uh, we've got Williams in uh, eighth at 2.9%, um, Alfa Romeo 3% and Haas 3%. So very, very close between those three. But again, at the moment, Williams is eighth and leading the last three. Just ahead of that, uh, Alfa Tori is 1.9%. So if we, between Alfa Tori and, and Williams is actually 1% of performance. So I think that we've see, we see that Williams, Alfa Romeo and Haas are in that order at the back of the field. And I think we see that from third, it's Racing Point, McLaren, Ferrari with Renault stuck in there in the middle, um, which is, is actually very strange because they've had Renault have had you know, very bad races and very good races. They haven't quite got their average up yet. So over these next couple of races, that might change. But um, 
that's the facts as we've got them right now. I must admit, I quite like the consistency of McLaren. That's uh, they seem to have the, the the sort of best band of uh, operations. So uh, nobody was asking me, but I'm going to say I'm going to go for them. No, well, 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 I wouldn't, I wouldn't disagree with there, Ed, and I, and I think on race day they're actually probably pretty good. I mean, they've had a bit of a loss. You know, this is actually performance. This isn't race day, but you know, they lost since um, as far as the race in Spa was concerned when they had done a good job in qualifying. So. Yeah, it's not much, not much difference in the McLaren uh, Racing Point um, package, and I think you're right. McLaren seem to have a handle on what they're doing better, a little bit better at this point in time. Sounds like there was a dog disagreeing in the background again, though, Gary. That's my dog heading out to the garden. There's a must be a bird out there or something. He's chasing off a tree. I'm all, I'm always very happy with a dog contribution on the uh, on the podcast. Uh, the next set of questions is all about this engine mode change for the the Italian Grand Prix, with having to use the same kind of basic mode in the race as you have in in qualifying. The real DS asks if no more party modes means there'll be more driving management. R. Dunn asks, will the restrictions be an all-round benefit uh, for the sport? And Sport 65, Billy, says, how much advantage might be lost by the Mercedes engine when the party mode is is turned off? So, effects and rationale for this uh, this rule change. My whole thing for liking the idea of it, and I've, I've sort of pushed a bit for this in my in my terms, it's it's the fact that it's invisible to the public. You know, you don't you don't have a clue what's going on. You don't have a clue how somebody catches another car and then suddenly they can't pass them? Is it because you can't pass them? Or is it because the other guy's just been able to turn the knob a little bit? It, as I say, it's all invisible stuff to the naked eye. And I think that's what's detracting from Formula 1 at the moment. Too much technology in the underground undergrowth that you, you just can't detect, you know. Telling the drivers about tyres and stuff like that and what the temperatures are and how they've got to look after this one or that one, I think that's all wrong. The driver should be driving the car alone and unaided. So when he sets off on the, to me on the on the first lap of the race, you know he should be driving the car alone and unaided to the end of that race. If he if he has to back off a little bit and save the engine a little bit, change gear earlier, whatever, he needs to make those decisions. You know he needs to understand that he needs to leave a bit in reserve for whenever somebody might catch him, but not just by turning a knob. He just you know if the driver just drives the car flat out for what he's got. And then he turns a knob and it can go two or three tenths quicker or two or three, three tenths slower. That's wrong. You need the driver to make those decisions. So my party mode ban is the fact that these engines, you've got three engines for the season this year. It's, what, 17 races, I think, lined up now. Um, and it's a challenge for any engine company to build uh, three engines that will last that many miles. That should be the challenge. Not that you can now have, you can have five laps at level, you know, nine. You can have you know, 15 laps at level 8 or whatever, right down, and that leaves you with your race laps then. You know, you, you can only put so much stress through the engine and the stress mounts up. You know, if at level 9, for example, maximum power, the, the stress level on some of the parts of the engine is 20-30% more, then you've got to reduce the overall mileage. Um, so I don't think that, end of the day, the party mode thing does any good. Will it do any harm? You know, I don't know what the big steps are. I don't know how much they are, but I know that there's probably there's probably about twenty horsepower, twenty five horsepower available by turning a knob, and I think that's that's not the correct thing to have. Now that will be the same th- going through to other Mercedes-run teams or um, Renault-run teams or um, Honda-run teams. So it's one of those sort of situations where it's it's going to be different for everybody by a little bit. Mercedes keeps saying, "Okay, we can run the." 
higher power for all of the race, that's fine. But the higher power for all of the race is probably going to be 5 horsepower instead of suddenly a switch that gives you 25 or 30 horsepower. So I would rather see them run 5 horsepower more all the time than just have the switch available to them. Uh, the next question is, again, related to the Mercedes advantage at Monza. Tim Stoll asks, what can Red Bull do to catch Lewis? What goes along with lower downforce to try to gain speed at Monza? That's a tricky one. I mean, lower downforce is, is on the cars because of lower drag, not because of anything else. You want to go faster in the straights. You, you know, if you could run the car um, at that speed on the straights, but with higher downforce, then you'd, you'd have it on the car, but you don't. So the lower downforce is a, second, a secondary thing that comes with the lower drag to get the top speed. Red Bull, you know, the old philosophy of, of fairly normal racing cars was that you want to get the rear of the car as low as possible down the straights. That reduces the drag. You know, if you imagine the rear wing's lower, everything's lower. Um, and it, you can also stall the diffuser. Um, so you get a, a drag reduction. And, I mean, even the stalling of the diffuser in, in my day was a little bit like a like a light switch. You know, you go along there and you're struggling to get the next kilometer. The diffuser was stolen, and suddenly you'd find five, six, eight kilometers. Um, and to the driver, it felt like you just you know press the turbo button. Um, Renault's um, sorry, Red, uh, Red Bull's philosophy of running the car with a high rake doesn't bode well for straight line speed. That's not a philosophy that goes together, to be honest. They've tried everything they can with the way they run the car, the way the side pods are, the way they bring the airflow in over the diffuser to try to make the car think it's, it's running low ride height. But it, but it isn't. It does produce a downforce in the low-speed corners, which Monza needs. So I think all they can do there is go and get the best out of it they can. Unfortunately, well, I'd be very surprised if it's enough to, to catch up with the Mercs. That's, that's going to be a problem. Um, but at the end of the day, they can only get out of it for that one individual race specification, what they can, do the best job possible. If they do the best job possible, third is probably going to be it. The next question is about tyres. Obviously, we had all of the top three saying the race was fairly boring because of the amount of management they were doing at Spa. Andy Burtonshaw asks if you ever see a return to tyres that can be pushed for more than one lap. Rockford Stephen says, how about a tyre war to spice it up? And, and Dan on Twitter even suggests whether you could have a maximum lap time in the, in the race to, uh, uh, to stop people managing tyres. I mean, the tyres the are, the, are the big limiting, limiting factor, aren't they, in terms of the way the races happen? Yeah, they are indeed. I mean, it's uh, it's massive. The fact that you know the lap time reduction between qualifying and the race is just so much nowadays. It's like double the fuel load, really, to be honest. And and part of that is looking after the tires. It's also looking after the gearbox, looking after engines and stuff. So it doesn't all come from the tires, but a big percentage of it does. Now, you know, we've got to look at this a little bit carefully. We talk about more than one lap. I think it shows you that and. Um, in the race, Daniel Ricciardo set the fastest lap at Spa on his last lap of the race. Um, and that says that, you know, the tyres the tires are still under you, depending upon how you use them. He ran the car with low downforce. You know, his car would have been moving a bit more than most other cars. In theory, that would be bad for the tyres, but it's not really. Um, it's load, you know, actual physical load that you're putting through the tyres actually, in a way, hurt the tyres. And I think we saw that with... Um, was Bottas and Hamilton? They were, they were keeping their fingers crossed for that last lap because they knew what happened at Silverstone, the high load circuit again, with the downforce levels they were running. So, I don't think we should jump in and just say that you know these tires are only good for one lap. I've 
been in Bolton Motorsport for a long, long time. You know, I've seen in the 70s, you know, driving with the tyres blistering. Um, you know, Austria, for example, the old Austria used to be a typical example, the left front tyre blistering. Um, it used to, you know, all my life I've never seen tyres just be in something that you stick in the car and you drive flat out for a Grand Prix and you take them off and clean them up for next weekend. You know, they're, they're hanging on the rims, and they always will be. They are the four bits of black rubber, black, black contact to the track, so they do get abused. They do get loaded up a lot. So it's, it's difficult to just jump in and say you could make a tyre that will, that will be able to be driven from the lights going out to the checkered flag. I think we want to get a situation where we end up with being able to risk for the durability of that tyre. And that's what the, the, low, or the refueling did for us. Not that I want refueling back. But refueling meant you could run a light car flat out for your 15 laps or whatever it was, your stint or 20 laps, whatever it be, knowing you're getting rid of them and knowing that you were you know, getting the fuel required to, to do the next stint of the race. So the regulations were so different then. But even then, you were still looking after the tyres. The tyres were graining. You had to drive through the graining stage on them. You know, but, but they did it, and they, and they still do it. So there's a lot of criticism for Pirelli and the tyres, but they... They, they do build a tyre for, for this formula as a one-solution a one tyre, five different compounds. I just wish they'd go a compound softer at most Grand Prix, um, just like they did at Silverstone too, because it hasn't done any harm. You know, Spa was, Spa was not difficult on the tyres. The, the soft tyre would still do two or three laps quickly. Um, and it was just, just not, you know, not right. We, we were getting to lap. We would have got probably to lap 15, 18 or something if it hadn't been for the safety car on the soft tyre at the start of the race. And at the end of the day, in my book, they should be hanging off the rim by that point in time. And, and they weren't. They were still doing okay. So as far as um, a tyre war to spice things up, it's a difficult thing because of cost. How you get a, a Formula 1 a tyre manufacturer to come into Formula 1 with the limitation on testing and stuff now is almost impossible to see. Unless a tyre company wanted to come in under the same control as what Pirelli are. In other words, you know, you don't get any tyre testing. You do your tyre testing if you want to on a Friday morning, the first practice, that's it. It's the same for Pirelli and it's the same for Joe Bloggs tyres. Um, but I think to bring a tyre company in now um, would be very, a second tyre company in now would be very, very difficult financially. Uh, the next question is a slightly more general question from Noob Retired on Twitter, who says, how can an engineer know if the drivers extract the maximum out of the cars? This is something I guess you've spent a lot of your time in your career trying to understand. So how, how do you work out what the car can actually do? Well, th- things have actually changed quite a bit since, since my day. and Really, it's, it's down to, in my day, it was, you know, if one driver was quick, quicker than the other, which is the first thing you've got to be quicker than your teammate, then you're doing a better job in, in that same car as such. Um, but And now currently you'd be, you'd be looking at that against your simulation. You know, you'd have a simulation that's as, from data you've gathered through, through years of experience as such, you'd have simulation that gives you probably corner time, lap time, corner time, acceleration, you know, speed in the straight, everything, which includes the setup of the car, tire characteristics. So you'll hear... You'll hear the radio the engineer on the radio saying, "Oh, your times are you know your times are really good, or um, you can afford to lose a tenth here and there if you're running on higher fuel." That's because they can simulate all that stuff and see what the lap time should be from the package you're driving. Now, whenever I go back to simulation and, and Renault, 
that's the area where, as I say, they've gone off the beaten track a little bit. I think that maybe their simulation isn't working, or their data that they're putting into the simulation from the wind tunnel, etc., isn't as good as it should be. But in normal conditions, a team like Mercedes or Red Bull will have a simulated lap time for this amount of fuel on on this tyre, and then it's down to the driver to go and achieve that. And um, that's how you know, really, if basically you can look at the corner speed in the simulation, you can look at the corner speed of the driver, and you can see whether or not you know, you're achieving all that. Maybe there's one corner where it's slower or one corner where it's faster. Conditions might have changed a little bit there. So, you know, after you've done your first decent running, you definitely can compare all that and your two drivers. Because one driver will always be quicker in one corner than another. You know, another driver quicker than another one. So, you know, it's up to the two drivers to work together. Why are you faster through that corner? Why am I faster through this corner? And then try and come up with the best solution for the team. So, end of the day, if it matches your simulation and you're quicker than your teammate, you're doing a pretty good job. A set of questions on Ferrari now. Rob O'Halloran says, what scope do Ferrari have improvement between now and the end of 2021 in the best case scenario? Uh, there's also a question from Dan Metcalf about the engine restrictions and how you can actually make changes over the coming races. Yeah, Ferrari obviously are up against it, particularly when it comes to the engine, aren't they? They are really up against it when it comes to the engine. As I say, it's, it's just one of those sort of very, very strange things. Um, you know, to be now 1.6% off um, over the average of these seven races of Mercedes, whenever they were knocking on the very small numbers of, of less than 1%, you know, they were you know, 0.3, of a percent off, um, is quite a surprise. And it must be a big surprise for them. Again, we have no idea what this this thing was that they were doing that the FIA deemed to be a bit close to the mark and they're not allowed to use it anymore. We don't know what it is. Um, it's just the way that you know the FIA wanted to work through this situation that they had. I mean, how they recover from that, I don't really know because it's one of those sort of things where you need to really be able to identify and fix your problem. And if it was a problem that was created because something was illegal, then at the end of the day, you know, you can do nothing about that, can you? It's it's it's, it's that loophole. Um, last year, uh, what did we get for Ferrari? They were point three two of a percent off Mercedes over the season. Point three two of a percent was you know, knocking on the door of of taking on Mercedes, and now that's gone to one point six percent. So a major drop off in something that was deemed to be using the grey area, I suppose you might call it. I wouldn't say it's illegal. Um, I, I don't know enough about it. But for them to move forward now, it's, it's pretty tough because they, they can't just reconfigure and, and, and use that again. They have to think again. They have to think and now. It's like starting again, to be honest. You know, between 2014, I think, and 2015, Ferrari made very, very big PU steps and you'd have to go way back to then even to ask the question, when did they first come up with this brilliant idea that um, that made that step? Because, you know, Renault couldn't make that step. Nobody else could make that step. We saw how Honda struggled whenever they came in. Um, so I'm not sure, you know, we look at 2018 and 19 and think Ferrari had uh, someone special. They might even have had it for a bit longer than that, to be honest. So um, for them, it's going to be pretty tough. There are opportunities to... To develop the engine, um, but it's 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 not easy because it's a complete package. It's not just one individual thing that's struggling for them. You know, they're 
they're going to have to, to develop that complete package as a unit. So there is stages they can do, um, but it's, not, it's going to be tough. A question about spare cars now. Robin Fisher points out that Sainz had a DNS at Spa. Hulkenberg couldn't start the first Silverstone race. So is there not an argument for having a spare car uh, in terms of uh, the, the costs? Surely it isn't that much of a saving. And then if you have a big pile-up like Belgium 98, you'd end up with uh, a small number of cars taking the restart. So what's the argument for and against proper spare cars? Well, the argument you know, against it was was pretty simple. The... Um, the garages were getting too small to have three cars on it. That's, it's, it's genuinely true. I mean, you know, it, it, everything had outgrown the facilities and the fact that a third car was deemed to be expensive to run. But, you know, the most expensive thing is not taking part in the race. And as as, um, as you say, the, the, uh, as Robin says, you know, the, the fact that Saints couldn't run the race is more expensive than anything. Um, and, and Hulkenberg at Silverstone. So at the end of the day, you know, there's a car in a box. It's all together, you know, with wiring looms and fuel system and all that sort of stuff. And there's certain things you can put in and there's certain things you can't. Um, but it, but it basically, it's a chassis complete. And then in the other corner of the garage is a gearbox and an engine and a rear suspension all complete. And, and you know, you join the two up and, and tighten up four nuts and bolts. A lot more to it than that. But basically, all the parts are sitting around there ready to go and ready to be used. And I see no reason why that couldn't all be as one, even if it's still parked in the truck out the back, and you know it doesn't, it isn't able to be used until the warm-up lap for the race. You know that that just means that you can get a twenty a twenty car grid, um, because we you know twenty cars isn't a lot. We need to see as many out there as possible, but uh, all the parts are there, every, all the facilities are there, and the only time it comes into the track as such or gets moves into the track is on a Saturday night um, because all these cars go into park Fermi and stuff so it's not as though the mechanics are working flat out I'm sure there could be two or three mechanics that would drag that car out of a truck fire it up see it's all okay and um, sit in the back of the garage and ready for for Sunday um, it's yeah I think it's a wise choice a wise thing if you had a spare car complete and only could be used on Sunday morning the warm-up laps not not before it because then you if you have it before you need the all the bigger facilities you know room for three cars all the people the whole shebang you only use it whenever one of your cars doesn't make it back to the pits or such as such uh, we've also got a question about racing point performance uh, david gossett says why was racing point so far off the pace compared to Renault and mclaren at spa when they historically have a good record and do you think lance stroll and sergio perez are really showing the pace of the car or the driver's limiting factor for that team I don't think I don't think Stroll and Perez are a limiting factor. I'm, I'm quite you know pleasantly surprised by Stroll because he's got a car now that's obviously predictable, understandable, all that sort of stuff, and he, he's knocking on the door with Perez, and Perez is no slouch. So, end of the day, there's probably better drivers out there that might do a bit a bit better in it, but I think Spa they they dropped off. I think they sort of nearly believed their own hype a little bit. Um, I don't think they ran the car. Um, for Spa, they were sort of in the middle a bit, following the Mercedes philosophy. The Mercedes philosophy is obviously very good, but you have to qualify in the front of the, the front of the grid. Get downforce in the car, look after the tyres, get in the front of the grid, disappear immediately, um, and you have a very good chance of winning the race. Not not so with Racing Point, you know, you're going to qualify 
the back end of the top ten or middle of the top ten, you're still going to be going racing. So you have to you have to get your car set up one way or another. Um, they seem to lose you know, some of their straight line speed advantage that they had at Spa in the past. Um, so they were stuck in the middle a little bit. I was, you know, I was saying before the race, I thought that if, if the re- weather forecast was really for rain, they should have gone for a higher downforce setup and and really worked on Sunday for the for the rain. But obviously the rain never came anyway, so they'd have been they'd have been scuppered because of that. But um, they they did, you know, they did what they did. I don't understand why they didn't pit Perez during that safety car. Um, that seems strange, but he recovered back to probably where he would have been anyway. But if they had pitted him, he might have done a better job. So it was all it's all about if and but. Um, I don't think they did a very good job in Spa, and I think you'll see them learning from it a bit. Um, and, that, and that's the most important thing. You know, if you have a bad weekend, learn why and try and make sure it doesn't happen again. And Gregory Higgins has a question about the Giovinazzi Russell crash, which obviously we saw a loose wheel which Russell uh, piled into. So uh, so he asks that. Well, he said he, he thought that F1 had got on top of wheels coming away from the car, but we've had a couple of accidents recently where a wheel has come loose. So what, what do you think's changed? Of course, we've got the Zylon wheel tethers on the car, so the aim is that they don't come away, but it does still sometimes happen. Yeah, it does still sometimes happen. I'm not sure how you eliminate it, you know, 100%, to be honest. Um, the, the wheel covers, you know, they have to stand a certain load. Um, <clears throat> there's more than one per wheel, so just in case one gets cut or whatever, but I'm sure at the end of the day, the FIA will be looking at that because the wheel, the wheel brake assembly, all that weighs probably higher than, you know, more than 25 kilograms. So that rushing through the, rushing through the air at speed, as you say, hitting a driver on the head, which the halo obviously protects now dramatically, but hitting a marshal or hitting a, somebody in the grandstand, if there was anybody in the grandstand, um, wouldn't be a good solution. Um, they have to look at it, but I think it will be very, very, very difficult. To actually make it impossible for it not to happen. That was a big accident, to be honest. And when you get caught in the tires, that that's the one thing that I would say is is probably a little bit detrimental. It's very easy for the tires to compress and then bounce you back out onto the track the way it did. And that's the same for bits. Those those bits sort of get a secondary impact, to be honest, by bouncing back out onto the track. So um, they, they need to look at it. Does the xylem cables need to be bigger? Do they need another one in there? If they do. Is the five kilograms extra that's going to add to the car weight? Is that okay? You know, we go on forever, don't we, with this sort of stuff. So, at some point in time, you, you know, we need to realise the FIA do do a good analysis and all this sort of stuff and try to come up with the best solutions. Um, it's it's the other stuff that I think we need to look at as well. You know, the slow lap stuff and cars tooling around the track, all that stuff needs to be looked at as well because there's big accidents waiting to happen there. You know, if it can happen, um, especially whenever the last part of the track is, is a bit more blind um, to the drivers coming around at speed. So there's lots and lots of things to look at. And I don't think we should just jump in on the fact that a wheel came off or a wheel and upright assembly came off a car. It needs to be looked at. It needs to be addressed. And, and I'm sure they will do that. Uh, well, that's the, the last of the questions. Just before we sign off, it's worth having a quick look ahead to Monza, particularly when it comes to a, a team like Ferrari. Is there anything Ferrari can do at Monza, which, while like Spa, it's a low downforce circuit again, it's not a compromise circuit, so it's maybe more straightforward to get the balance. So should Ferrari fans be hoping for anything better on home soil than 13th and 14th? Um, if we see the first pictures of Ferrari and they still have a rear wing in the car, they're going to be slow on the straights. Um, 
I think if we look at the rear wing assembly that Ferrari ran at Spa, it was it was very primitive. You know, it's like something you would saw on a on the um, Caterham a few years ago. You know, rectangular wing just with flap on the main plane, nothing too exciting. Um, whereas you know, you look at the Red Bull and you know it's twisted and ends of it develop less downforce, less drag, and you know a sophisticated rear wing assembly. So I'd like to sort of think that. Ferrari's whole philosophy at the minute seems to have gone wrong. Both the car, the downforce it produces, it seems to be draggy and it doesn't have the power. I don't know how you fix that in, in a week's time going to, to Monza just because it's in Italy. Uh, I don't see how they could reduce the downforce in their car enough for the speeds on the straight to be competitive uh, and still allow them to brake and get around you know, corners. Parabolica, the two Lesmos, they're not easy corners. Some of the chicanes are slightly different, but through a scary, you know, with the downforce levels they'd have to run would just be a nightmare. So I don't see them being able to jump in there very quickly and fix the problem. And especially because I don't think they really know what the problem is. They know what their deficit is because of what the FIA did to them at the end of the last year and the changes they had to make. And as I said earlier in this, in this podcast, you know, you, if you had something on the car that was giving you performance that was deemed to be illegal, it's very difficult to replace that. You know, because you have to sort of find it from somewhere else, and and you had been working on that for years, so I think they're going to have a tough a tough time for quite a while. Yeah, it's going to be a long, hard eighteen months, I think, for Ferrari and the uh, the one thousandth Grand Prix celebration at Mugello probably isn't going to be quite what they hoped. Uh, that's all we've got time for on this edition of the Gary Anderson F One Show. Thanks so much for your questions, and while you're following the action from Monza this weekend, if anything crops up, whether that's on television or reading the many articles Gary puts together for the race.com website, and as always, don't forget the hyphen if you head to the race.com. Uh, do feel thro- do feel free to throw a question our way. Uh, we'll be back next week with more from Gary. 